You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. The podcast that has neither sense nor sensibility. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today we noticed things were getting kind of white around here again, which, to be fair, is going to happen when you're going after the typical required reading literary canon, but... Wasn't three episodes ago Chanua Achebe? No, that would be 14. That would be six episodes ago. So, good try. He lives on in my heart. And, and he's the only other uh, writer of color that we've done so far. So, I'm trying to, try to fix that. Trying to... We, we could argue about Franz Kafka. That's true. We could go into a whole Jewish thing there, but we're not going to do it. We're talking about Zora Neale Hurston today and the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God. My eyes are always watching God. They're also watching the throne. That was it. You had two. You had one what, for episode. Well, what else can I watch? <laughs> uh, this season's Game of Thrones on HBO. No, I only watch CBS. CBS. America's Most Watched Network. Tonight, Sunday, when we're recording this, Big Brother, totally on. 60 Minutes, happening right now. America's number one news magazine show. News magazine show? Yeah. <laughs> that's how they sell it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Their, their eyes were watching God has had an interesting sort of journey from its birth to when it sort of became a thing and something that was sort of assigned in the classroom. I don't remember if I read it in high school or college. I never read it. You never read it. I think I read it, I want to say like senior year of high school maybe or maybe freshman year of college or something like that. Like it was never assigned to me. It's not something I had assigned and didn't read. It was just never assigned. Ah, it was assigned to me. And I definitely had a hard time with it because it's written entirely in the dialect that Zora Neale Hurston grew up hearing. And, you know, it's the idea of you're going to tell your own story in your own voice, in the voice that is familiar to you. And it can be tough when you're not part of that culture to pick up on the dialect. So that kind of kept me from kind of getting the full sort of effect from it when I did read it but there uh, there was something that really pissed me off about it and reading it again this time still pissed me off and we're gonna get to it later what a tease <laughs> exactly you gotta keep, gotta keep what listening. can it be you gotta keep listening but so i guess before we get to the story and what exactly pisses me off about it let's first learn about zora neale hurston oh zora i always thought it was zoro yeah, Zor- Zorro the Blade Neil Hurston. Zora Neil Hurston was born January 7th, 1891 and died January 28th, 1960. She was born in Natsugula, Alabama. As an aside, I just have to point out, Megan's favorite NFL player was also born in Natsugula, Alabama. Ha ha, Clinton Dix. She's not my favorite NFL player at all. You just really wanted to say ha ha, Clinton Dix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she was born to John and Lucy Ann Hurston. She was the fifth of eight total children the couple would have. 
being born in uh, African-American family in the American South in the late 19th century, it should not be surprised that all four of her grandparents happened to have been born into slavery. Good delivery! Oh, I don't know how else she might deliver this news. <laughs> Zora's father was a preacher and a sharecropper. He later became a carpenter, and her mother was a schoolteacher. Most of Zora's childhood was spent living in Eatonville, Florida, where her family moved when Zora was three. Edenville is notable for being one of the first all-black towns to be incorporated in the U.S. This means, among other things, that the uh, citizenry was nearly completely minority-based, and so the people who lived there were generally able to live how they wanted without much interference from like other cultures. And in case you want a point of reference, Eatonville is a bit north of Orlando, right? Correct. Yes. In the shadow of the mouse. Uh, the mouse didn't exist yet. Well, yeah, no. Edenville was first. Edenville would become a source of inspiration for Zora, and it was basically the town she would return to in her writings throughout her life. In fact, later in her life, Zora would actually refer to Edenville as her birthplace, even if that was not the truth. By the time she was six, her dad had been elected mayor of Edenville, and he became the preacher at the biggest church in town. By 1901, when Zora was 10, school teachers from northern states were visiting Edenville, and they left Zora a large collection of books, which she later described as a kind of birth for her, as this sparked her interest in literature. When she was 13, her mother died. At that point, her father remarried a woman named Maddie Moog. Ooh, that's a good one. That's like a alliterative um, like comic book character name. Maddie Moog. Well, this did not work out well for Zora. Oh. Um, one, the remarriage, because it happened pretty quickly after the wife died, the um, father quickly remarried, and so there was a scandal in the town that there were rumors that because of the quick turnaround that the preacher slash mayor was getting it on with old Maddie before the wife kicked the bucket. Legend has it. Legend? Legend has it. Okay. That this politician served as a source of inspiration to Bill Clinton in his ways. In full discretion, I created that legend <laughs> just now. The legend continues. <laughs> it lives on in you. Megan, I've never heard of any other politician cheating on his wife. Yeah, so. oh, yeah it's unheard, unheard of. Yeah. So after this uh, marriage, her dad became really dickish to her. The dad and stepmom decided to send Zora away to boarding school in Jacksonville, probably so they could further their tryst by having sex on the kitchen counter or something and didn't want Zora's tiny eyes to be watching them. They'd rather she be watching God or something. Yeah, except then they sent her to Jacksonville, the land that God forgot. <laughs> Jacksonville is the biggest city in the state of Florida. Great. If you're from Florida, you understand. If you're not from Florida, we'll just explain right now. Jacksonville's a hole. It's the worst. Don't ever go there. Megan. It's home to the Jacksonville Jaguars. You hate Jacksonville more than I do. Jacksonville Jaguars. Great. <laughs> Maybe in the last place in the standings, but number one in your heart. No, not not at all. Anyway, once in Jacksonville, dad and stepmom decided to stop paying her tuition, which led to the boarding school to expel Zora. That sucks. Jeez. Yeah, I know. We're going to send you to boarding school. Once you're there, we're not going to pay. So then you get kicked out and now you're in Jacksonville. What the hell? Yeah, now I... You're just in Jacksonville. Nothing else to do. How old was she? Like in her late teens. Fuck. So this forced Zora to take up odd jobs to survive. She became a maid and began singing in a theatrical company to make ends meet. She did this for about a decade. Wow. Yeah, not the most glamorous of lives. Eventually, by 1917, she tried to further her education. 
She was now 26 and had heard about a free high school program put on by Morgan State University, which is a historically black college up in Baltimore. The problem was, is it was a high school program and she was 26. So what's a girl to do? She changed her birth date to make herself 16 on the application and it worked. She must have looked really young for her age. Black don't crack. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She was accepted into the program, and she graduated the next year at the age of 27. Amazingly, she was not the Val of Victorian. Maybe there was a 45-year-old posing as a (laughs) 14-year-old in her graduating class. After high school, Zora went to study at Howard University. She helped uh, found the student newspaper there. She studied Spanish, English, Greek, as well as public speaking. During this time, she began to publish and quickly began to get noticed for her work. After graduating with an associate degree, she was offered a scholarship to Barnard College of Columbia University, where she became the college's only black student at the time. Wow. Go Zora. At the age of 37, but posing probably as a 10-year-old at this point, (laughs) she earned her BA in anthropology. During her time at Columbia, Zora had her work sponsored by some rich benefactors, which allowed Zora to conduct research in the field. She was able to travel extensively throughout the Caribbean as well as the American South. All of this travel allowed her to immerse herself into different cultures, which provided rich material for her writings. During these excursions is when she wrote Mules of Men in 1935 and To Tell My Horse in 1938. At the time, she was being supported by awards from the Guggenheim Foundation. After her turns abroad, Zora returned stateside. By this time, she was living on her own in Harlem and had befriended the likes of Langston Hughes and others who were part of the Harlem Renaissance. You might have heard of it. All right, there you go. From being disowned and homeless in Jacksonville to chilling out in Harlem with Langston Hughes. So apparently, Zora's apartment was known as the spot for social gatherings in Harlem. The, the connections that she made during this time helped her continue with her publishing and her writing success, and it helped her get her stuff printed in publications like Opportunity Magazine. At the age of 36, Zora married a jazz musician and a future physician. You like that? Like progression in Jazz musician to physician? Yeah. (laughs) He was named Herbert Sheen. The marriage only lasted a couple of years, which was actually pretty good for Zora, because her next marriage, which was to Albert Prince, not Prince Albert, who nevertheless may have had a Prince Albert piercing like Prince Albert had. Is anybody even going to know what a Prince Albert is anymore? I don't know. I barely know. I guess I'll leave it for the people. I guess so. How about your Prince Albert in a can? You know that one? No, I don't. I never no. got that joke. I still don't know what the fuck that means. Or it's like a prank call. Like, is your refrigerator running? Do you have Prince Albert in a can? I don't fucking know what that means. I you better what I'm out. What is the, why would somebody even ask that in the first place? Why do you have like a, a guy? I don't get it. I've never got that joke. They put fish in a can. Yeah. You know, like bumblebee tuna. Yeah. There's like Prince Albert tuna or oh. sardines. Never even, never. Better what I'm out. Is that, I've never seen that brand ever. Anyway. I learned a thing. Long story short, the marriage only lasted seven months. Oh, well. Yeah. After her time in Harlem, Zora bounced around a bit. She moved to Ogawi, Florida for a bit. Then lived in Westfield, New Jersey for some time, where Langston Hughes happened to be her neighbor. Then she moved back to Florida. She just couldn't get away. Just hopping back and forth, huh? In 1934, Zora established a school of dramatic arts at Bethune-Cookman University, which is in Daytona Beach. Zora described the school as, quote, based on pure Negro expression. Cool. 
Uh, Zora was unable to make a living working at the school and basically spent the rest of her life bouncing around when it came to appointment. She worked as a freelance journalist for a bit. Then she became a librarian. A, li- a librarian. <laughs> she became a, a librarian. <laughs> Everyone uh, was very confused. Uh, then she became a librarian at the Pan Am Technical Airways Library before being fired for being, quote, too well educated for the job. Wait, what? She was too well educated, it turned out. Like in the middle of doing everything, they decided she was too too well educated Get out of here. Yeah, I mean, I get, like, when you don't get hired for something because they say you're overqualified, but, like, how, like you're just doing the job. It's like, mm, you know what? Actually, you're too you're too good. Yeah, no we way. need someone dumber. By the time she got fired from the librarian position, she was 60 years old and was fighting mm-hmm. to make ends meet again. At this point, she took up work as a substitute teacher and was also a maid at the time. She was also living on public assistance. During this downturn, Zora suffered a stroke and died from heart disease in 1960. After living out her days in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. Jesus. Extravagance. What a, what a life. Like every other writer, Zora asked a friend to burn all her writings upon her death. What is up with this? It just it destroy, destroy it all. I want it to go with me. Unlike basically every other writer that we've covered, Zora actually found someone who went through with it. Well, fuck. They were like, all right, I mean, if you say so. But. God damn it. Wouldn't you know, there just happened to be some guy by the name of Patrick Duvall who was driving by and saw this huge fire and took it upon himself to extinguish the fire, not knowing what was going on. You're shitting me. No. Wow. So Zora's writings were saved and the majority of the works now reside at the University of Florida Libraries. Go Gators. That's some lucky fucking happenstance. (laughs) So if you... Have been paying attention, Zora died without much notoriety, and her writing career never really took off during her lifetime, unlike Langston Hughes and some other writers who were part of the Harlem Renaissance. Hell, she was awarded a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship. Like, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, they just hand them out. You want a Guggenheim Fellowship? Ego. So what gives? Well, people didn't really like Zora at the time. In particular, other black writers, which probably hurt her popularity the most. So there was definitely a reason that other uh, black writers were not terribly fond of her, and it wasn't just because they were like, mm, we just don't like you, because you're from Florida. No, I mean, they loved their apartment. Her place was the spot. It's true. So a big part of the Harlem Renaissance, according to writers that took part in it, was to revitalize black culture in America through literature. What Zora did in her mind was basically hold up to a mirror to what black culture was, warts and all. So a lot of people looked at Zora's work as caricatures, basically the worst aspects of black culture, especially black Southern culture. One of the things people pointed to at the time was how Zora wrote the dialogue for her characters. I'm going to read an example from one of her books. (sighs) Okay, um, (laughs) it's an audio medium. We can't just hold up a page. We're We're trying to do it as respectfully as possible. But uh, this is essentially the dialect that the whole book is written in, so it is necessary to kind of explain it and why people, especially fellow, you know, people in like Harlem Renaissance and whatnot, might have found it offensive. Just so you know, she wrote phonetically, so it doesn't follow the normal spelling rules. So the vowels are mixed up a bit. So that's a big old resurrection lie, Ned. A slew foot drag led lie at that. And I dare you to hit me too. You know I'm a fighting dog, and my hide is worth money. Hit me if you dare. I'll wash a tub of gator guts and that quick. 
So people in her circle didn't really like that kind of stuff. And people outside her circle didn't really understand it. And quite honestly, I'm wondering what the hell the character was trying to convey. I'm gonna beat the shit out of you, maybe. Or come come at me. Aside from her writing uh, and alienating potential allies, her politics also alienated others. She was staunchly against the New Deal. She believed economic support provided by the New Deal would make African Americans dependent on the government for generations to come, and in turn made the government too powerful. Even later in life, when she was living in obscurity and struggling to make ends meet, she was staunch in her point of view writing, quote, But I've made phenomenal growth as a creative artist. I'm not materialistic. If I do happen to die without money, somebody will bury me, though I do not wish it to be that way. A specific example of Zora's unease with government can be seen with her reaction to the Brown v. Board of Education uh, Supreme Court decision in 1955. Just in case you don't know, this is the Supreme Court decision that led to desegregation in the South. Zora was very much against the decision by the court. She wrote an article titled, Court Order Can't Make the Races Mix, that was published in the Orlando Sentinel. Zora was afraid of government uh, being able to give preferential treatment to a certain group and did not like government being able to put its finger on the scale for one group over the other. She was afraid of other groups being given that preferential treatment in the future. Zora wrote in part, quote, If I say a whole system must be upset for me to win, I'm saying that I cannot sit in the game, and that safer rules must be made to give me a chance. I repudiate that. If others are in there, deal me a hand and let me see what I can make of it, even though I know some in there are dealing from the bottom and cheating like hell in other ways. In short, Zora was bootstrappy, seemingly a self-identified libertarian in a world and in a literary group that was defining itself as getting equality through federal government regulation. The interest in Zora was revived by Alice Walker, who published an article titled In Search for Zora Neale Hurston in 1975, nearly two decades after Zora's death. Um, If you're not familiar with Alice Walker, I would say her most famous work is um, The Color Purple which is also a book that we're probably going to cover someday. It is also notable that during her search for Zora, Alice Walker learned that Zora was buried in an unmarked grave. Deciding this was unbecoming for Zora, Alice Walker found an unmarked grave in the general area where Zora was supposedly buried and put a marker on the grave proclaiming this must be the final resting spot for Zora Neale Hurston. Really, like... Well, <laughs> this must be it. <laughs> this is good enough, I guess. So if you ever visit Zora's grave, just know it's probably not Zora under there. It might be. It might be. It must be. The odds are against you. Way to go, Alice Walker. Well, what, what is she supposed to do? Just like wander around digging until she found, you know, a body that might have been Zora Neale Hurston? Plant a tree in the area and be like, this tree was buried in honor of Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah, I guess that's a little better. It's feeding on her guts and her soul that's under Gross. the ground in the area. May these roots find her. Uh. It was in the 1970s that Zora's literature began to take off. This coincided with the proliferation of black studies programs uh, taking hold in universities across the nation. Aside from Alice Walker, Audrey Lord and Henry Louis Gates Jr. became big champions of Zora. In 1978, their eyes were watching God. Uh, was reprinted and was a huge success, selling its original total print run in less than a month. Damn. Yep. And that is Zora Neale Hurston. The tale. The tale. The, le- the legend of Zora Neale Hurston. May she rest in peace wherever she's buried. Somewhere. Somewhere. And the person in her grave, Godspeed. <laughs> oh my god. 
Hey everyone, it's me, Megan. I'm hidden here within the folds of this episode, like a fun surprise. Um, what am I doing here? So we recorded this episode a little while ago because we always kind of do them ahead of time. And I'm just uh, popping in real quick right now because it's, it's really late, but it's also day two of the two pods a day campaign which is what I'm going to tell you about. God, I'm so tired. But I'm not tired of telling people about Two Pods a Day. It's a super awesome campaign where every day, for the entire month of August, two indie podcasts are showcased all over social media on their accounts, like uh, on Twitter, they're at two, like number two pods a day. On their website, twopodsadays.wordpress.com. It's two, like, number two on both those. They have a Facebook page, hashtag two pods a day. Um, yeah, just go on to Twitter under the hashtag two pods a day. It's super cool. It's a way for indie podcasts to promote each other and collaborate with each other and just support each other and, and just feel love and friendship and creativity and all that. And it also helps you discover a whole lot of cool shows that you might not have ever found like us, because we're on it this month. I don't know what day. It's an exciting mystery, but it's a very cool thing, and you should go check it out, support it, tweet about it. This is a very cool campaign. A lot of, a lot of love and time and effort was put into it, and yeah, no, it's fucking rad. Okay, I think I'm done. So we now return to the podcast already in progress. I was never here. So the novel Their Eyes Were Watching God is about a woman named Janie Crawford. And it's it was a big deal at the time that Janie was sort of not only the protagonist of the novel, that this, you know, black woman, but also that she was the narrator of her own story. And that it's told in, you know, dialect and colloquial language. And so it's a big deal and, uh, you know, important and such. So, um, let's get into it. The novel begins with Janie Crawford emerging from the Everglades. That's uh, Florida's most iconic swamp, out of all the other swamps, where she has presumably been wrestling alligators, which is really all there is to do in the Everglades. But, Megan, there's also airboat ride! Yay! Yep, there you go. Best noise ever. <laughs> Fucking Florida. So, she emerges from the Everglades and returns to the town of Eatonville, where she used to live. Eatonville is less than welcoming. The townsfolk loudly trade cruel gossip about her as she walks by about how she left in fine clothes and in the arms of a handsome young man while shooting everyone the double bird and is now coming back alone. We're also told that mostly people are jealous of the fact that she's extremely hot despite having reached the just utterly decrepit age of 40. I mean, they make it sound like she's like an 80-year-old woman. Like, 40's just the edge of death. Hey, man, this is the early 1900s. They did not have... They were were living to... It's not fucking medieval times. They didn't have concealers. They didn't have your Maybelline. Oh, you're talking about makeup. I thought you were talking about how old someone would have lived, (laughs) too. Yes, they had fucking makeup back then. (laughs) You ever been to Edenville? Have you? Still have, 1700s have, have there. Have you? <laughs> I've, I've driven through Alachua County. I've driven through a lot of these counties here in Florida. I'm, I'm a 
Still not sure they're out of the 18th century yet. Janie's best friend Phoebe tells them one all time that, I found like oh this group. Oh my god! Of, this it, is why this takes us so long. I, I found like this group of Spanish guys in like full armor walking around. They <laughs> refer to themselves as conquistadors. They were looking for the fountain of youth, and I'm like, guys, you're really late to the party. Like this is over. Well, Disney World's that way. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, well, uh, Janie's best friend Phoebe tells them all to mind their own business and heads to meet up with Janie. And Janie's like, they're all shit talking me, aren't they? And Phoebe's like. Eh. Yeah, kinda. But that's just because they're nosy busy buddies who are wondering where you've been and what you've been doing and if your young man took your money and ran off with a younger woman. And also, um, where have you been and what have you been doing and did your young man take your money and run off with a younger woman? And Janie's like, yeah, I bet you'd like to know. Which is good, because I'm gonna tell you. How come you're not reading it in the dialect? Because that You don't want to bring us there? Oh, you had to... Caucasianize it. Yeah, I, I had to Caucasian it up for me. The caucasity! <laughs> the caucasity of man. Except, as we all know by now, when it comes to framing devices, no one ever just tells the actual thing that just happened to them. They have to relate their entire life story first. Which is especially weird since it's established that Janie and Phoebe are good friends who have known each other for some time. So, like, she probably already knows this. But, whatever. Don't you tell sometimes the same stories again and again? It's not even the same stories again and again. Phoebe's like, where the fuck have you been? And Janie's like, it all started when I was a young girl. Like, just answer the question. Alright, so... The flashback that is the plot proper begins with Janie as a young girl in West Florida, born and raised. Around white kids was where she spent most of her days, wearing hand-me-downs and feeling all sad because she always got teased for having no mom and dad. She sat under a pear tree and thought about sex, kissing Johnny Taylor's what she did next. After one little kiss, her grandma got scared and said, even though you're only 16, you need to immediately get married to a man who can protect you. You'll get taken advantage and used for your body. Basically, so move it out to Bel Air. We go, what the fuck? <laughs> playing basketball in the playground. Yeah, yeah, I don't I, know the I, song. I did the, I, I did the joke yeah. already. Basically, Nanny, Janie's grandmother, says that she's tried to give Janie every advantage in life that she can. And that includes getting young Janie married off before Nanny dies so that she knows her granddaughter is in good hands. Unlike Nanny, who had to live as a slave before the Civil War, and unlike her daughter, Janie's mom, who was raped by a white man and after giving birth to Janie became an alcoholic and left her. So, we can kind of see where Nanny's coming from here, but also Janie is 16 and barely just kissed a boy, and Nanny wants her to marry some gross old man named Logan Killix. Skrillex? Yes, Logan Skrillex. Wow. Janie hates dubstep, so it's just, it's not gonna last. Even though Janie is an actual child and doesn't want to marry a grown man... Who, that she has no romantic feelings for, Nanny basically guilts Janie into doing it anyway, saying that she'll love him eventually, and also, dude's got 60 acres of land, so maybe she could just love that instead. So she marries Logan. And it sucks. The house is in the middle of nowhere, and she's lonely, and Logan sees her less as a wife and more as an object for him to lay claim to and put to use hauling firewood and shit. The main point it seems we're meant to take away from this is that they fight a lot about chopping and hauling firewood, and his feet stink real bad. Also, he won't stop mentioning his ex-wife, so, you know, A-plus marriage. I'm telling this to all the guys out there. You're current, don't want to hear about your ex. It's true. Yeah, Logan Skrillex. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm ready now. Next time I make a point, I'm dropping this. <laughs> you gotta wait till they actually drop. There you go. Okay, just stop. <laughs> I can't think of one that's gonna be appropriate. Alright. Janie goes to complain to Nanny, who tells her that if Logan isn't beating her, that's about the best she can hope for. Like, wait, you want to actually love each other? Look at you with your big pie-in-the-sky dreams of actually caring about the person you're married to, and I can't even keep this joke up because it's making me sad. And then Nanny dies. <laughs> God damn it! This is going to be the rest of the fucking thing, isn't it? You're just going to be dropping shit. <laughs> conversation though like about a month later so logan makes janie farm for him because he apparently was under the impression that he was marrying a plow horse and i can't fucking do this because i keep looking at you wondering when you're gonna press the button <laughs> you married a plow horse i gotta keep this going <clears throat> um so one day while he's away Janie sees a handsome, stylish gent who's Wait, wait, you, you, you talked over and you laughed through a important plot point here. Yeah. He's going to marry a horse? No! <laughs> I said, uh, Logan makes Janie farm for him because apparently he was under the impression that he was marrying a plow horse to do all the work for him. While he's away, she sees a handsome, stylish gent, basically Logan's polar opposite, named Joe Starks. She catches his eye by sexily pumping water. Like, that's literally a thing. She sees him and she wants, she's like, oh, I gotta, I gotta do something to look hot. Let me pump this water. Churning off the butter. No, pumping water. You're not listening. Raise a barn on Monday, uh, Tuesday I'll raise another. I hate you. And he tells her that he's off to a town he's heard of that's completely made up of black people and that he plans to invest in it as it grows into a city. And he thinks that Janie should run off with him because I guess she really did pump that water real sexily. And Janie's like, that does sound good, but, I mean, I am still married, and this is who Nanny chose for me, and I'm gonna honor her memory. Except. Except. Except then her and Logan get into an argument, and he threatens to kill her with an axe, and she's like, okay, fuck this Janie, out! <laughs> See, that was what I thought you were gonna do. Well, I got plenty more, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure, and so Janie runs off to Joe, who sweeps her away in a carriage to go get married. Run, run, run. Ran so far away. <laughs> wow, holy shit. That might be the worst one you've And she ran. And there, I found it. She ran, ran so far away. To Eatonville. Uh, so I don't my way through it. Joe's working out pretty good for Janie so far. He gives her, like, candy and nice things and whatnot. So she's like a five-year-old? Yeah essentially. But you know what? It's a nice change from Logan, so she'll take it. So they make it to Eatonville and find that it's not so much a town as it is a dirt patch. It's an idea. And kinda. And Joe's all like, I demand to see the mayor. And the townsfolk are like, uh, we don't have one. To which Joe responds, well, you do now. No take backs. 
So he also buys up all the free lots, sells them to new residents, builds roads, uh, the main general store, and basically he owns the town. So he gentrifies the area. Yep. And then he owns it all. Throughout all this, Janie's role is to go stand over there and look hot so people go, oh man, there's Joe's hot wife. He even tells her that she's not allowed to talk. She's just supposed to be like a sexy lamp or something. Hot. Joe tells her that she should just be happy to be the wife of someone so awesome and successful. But she's lonely because Joe's always off being like big dick mayor and no other woman in town want to talk to her. Partially because all of their husbands are hot for her. She starts to realize what an arrogant, egotistical bully he is about the same time as the townspeople do as he basically makes himself fucking lord of town. Okay, so this is how bad he is. A dude gets caught trying to steal candy from Joe's general store, and his reaction is to literally run him out of town. <laughs> Can't keep doing this. The get out of town match. Yeah. Sponsored by WWE. Great. So people are starting to get sick of his shit. But then this weird thing happens where, like, a bunch of dudes are torturing a mule. And then Joe buys the mule to save it, and suddenly everyone likes him again? The so mule or Joe? Joe. Because he bought the mule to save it from being beaten. So no one likes the mule still. No, people fucking love the mule all of a sudden. Um, Hurston devotes a good chunk of time telling us how people are just suddenly wild for this mule, and when it dies... They give it, like, a big funeral, and it's a little bit, like, tongue-in-cheek, like, it's a little jokey, but it's still kind of like, if, if anyone's ever seen Parks and Rec, it's a bit of a little Sebastian situation. The ass that don't quit in our hearts. Apparently. So, anyway, apart from the mule stuff, we see seven years of marriage pass as Joe bullies, belittles, and occasionally beats Janie placing intense restrictions on her due to him being wildly jealous about all the men in town wanting to fuck his hot wife. Like that she always has to keep her sexy, sexy hair all tied up. At this point, Janie's all of 24 and has just sort of resigned herself to a life of sadness. And then, even more time passes and now she's 35. She wants to run from Joe, but she's been with him for literally half her life now. Despite being 13 years her senior, Joe tries to distract everyone from seeing how old he's getting by being like, Man, Janie sure is looking old, right guys? <laughs> She's so old and gross and stop looking at my old and haggard hot wife, though. And Janie's sick of this shit. And their marriage begins deteriorating at roughly the same rate as Joe's gross old man body. He gets sick, but refuses to see an actual doctor until Janie finally calls one from Orlando, who's like, Your kidneys are fucked, bro. Lates. Uh, <laughs> Your his... kidneys are fucked. Oh! Oh! Your parent kidneys <laughs> on his deathbed. Oh gosh! Oh, what was that? Goofy. Yeah, they oh, bring gorsh. Goofy up from Orlando. Oh gosh! Your oh. kidneys are. Oh gosh! I can't do a Goofy. Just... <laughs> 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 that is definitely not a sound that Goofy makes. On his deathbed, Joe is still a dickhead to Janie and basically dies arguing with her about what an asshole he is. And Janie's finally free to let her hair down, both literally and metaphorically. And while she's not young anymore, so at this point she's sort of not quite 40, she's still a looker, and also now rich as hell to boot. She stays in town and runs the store and rebuffs the many, many, many dudes who come trying to get her to marry them because she's a strong, independent woman who don't need no man. Except, of course, until she meets a different sort of man. One night when tending the shop. He's everything a girl could want. Tall, dark... Handsome, not a misogynist, just the complete package. 
They hit it off, and Janie learns that his name is Virgible Woods, but that he goes by Tea Cake, because I guess that's better than Virgible. Better than urinal cake. Yeah, I mean, if you gotta pick one. Hi, I guess I'm Janie, and uh, this is my my boyfriend, Tea Cake. Mr. Cake. Please just call me Tea. Mr. Tea Cake. Mr. Tea Cake. (laughs) Now I know what his last name was. I never knew after all these years. (laughs) All right, there's Ice Q. A shocking twist. Ice Tea and Mr. Tea Cake. <laughs> Altogether, it sounds like a delightful Sunday brunch. <laughs> anyway, Janie likes Tea Cake a lot, but he's 12 years younger than her. Nice, Janie. Way to rob that cradle. Go, girl. Uh, no. No? Yeah. But, well, they're adult adults. It's not like how we usually see it, where it's like a 30-year-old dating a teenager. All right. She's like 40, and if he's like 12 years younger, that's like what? 28? I'll allow it. <laughs> they're, they're both consenting adults in this situation. So, high five for Janie. <laughs> God damn it. So, Tea Cake is 12 years younger than her and kind of broke. So, while she ain't saying he's a gold digger, well, she still wants to be careful and not get too close too fast. But he's just so darn sweet and adorable that she totally does that exactly anyway. Oh well. The town disapproves because Joe's been dead less than a year, and also because they think Tea Cake is just trying to take advantage of Janie and her money. Just like all the other guys in town who came to try to take advantage of Janie and her money after Joe died, so... Yeah! So Janie's like, Fuck y'all and fuck Eatonville. I'ma sell my store and run off with my hot young boyfriend. Peace! Yeah. No. I couldn't figure out where. Never, never <laughs> again. I couldn't figure out where they never go. All again. game of style. <laughs> never again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they get married, and the thing is, Tea Cake is good to Janie, but he's also kind of dumb. He can't hang on to money and gambles and gets in fights with dudes with names like Double Ugly. Like, do you want to get in a fight with a dude who willingly goes by the name Double Ugly? Well, based on mathematical principles... The double negative cancels each other out, becomes positive. So he's actually just super handsome. Yeah. (laughs) But Janie loves him anyway, like a big dumb puppy. They move out to the Everglades, um, bean farming with migrant workers. It's hard labor, but they make a good bit of money and are happy because they get to do it together. And at night, they, like, make dinner together. And all the other migrant workers just think they're, like, a really adorable couple. They become very popular in, like, the little shanty town that they're living in. And Janie thinks about how she's gone from being Mrs. Mayor to Mrs. Bean Farmer and how she's so much happier now. And as all good readers of literature know, that's just not allowed. So this girl named Nunky... Because at some point in the book, these names just kind of become a thing. There's Nunky, there's Stew Beef, and Motorboat, and just a whole whole gang of characters with names like that. This this might be racist pointing this out now, I don't know. As was the culture at the time. Yeah, culture at the time. I don't know. So Nunky keeps flirting with Tea Cake, and Janie catches them together in a field, and her and Tea Cake get into a fight that turns into hate sex, and then everything's okay again, I guess. Around this time, we also meet Mrs. Turner, a woman who's of mixed race, like Janie is. Mrs. Turner is hugely racist in a self-hating sort of way, and basically worships Janie because she's also half-white, but apparently looks whiter than Mrs. Turner. 
She also thinks Janie should leave Tea Cake because he's too black, and Janie's just like, please go away and not talk to me anymore forever. Except that only makes Mrs. Turner like her more? Because of course someone whiter would be more disparaging towards a black person. It makes perfect sense, and so all it does is make Mrs. Turner think that Janie's just so good at being white and continue to annoy the shit out of Janie and try to get her to leave Tea Cake for Mrs. Turner's brother. So Tea Cake responds to this, of course, with the rational act of beating Janie. Because of course he does. For fuck's sake, can we get one good guy? Can we get, like, one? Just one? No, don't. Don't you dare drop that beat. The book doesn't seem to have a problem with TK committing domestic violence because he's insecure about his wife leaving him for a man that she says to him she has absolutely zero interest in. So that's a thing. Eventually, TK takes a more proactive approach, and him and his friends run the Turners out of town, and then everything's good again, I guess. Because TK only beats her sometimes. So, the thing that I was talking about at the beginning, about there's a thing about the book that really pisses me off, this is the thing that pisses me off. It pissed me off when I was a kid, well, a kid, you know, younger, a teenager, whatever, too, because T-Cake is, you know, idealized as this great dude who's, the, you know, the, like, love of her life, and it's like, okay, yeah, he seems like a pretty good dude, but he still fucking beats her for no reason. Like, it's not even like they're in any kind of fight. He's like, oh, this other woman is saying that you should leave me for this other guy, and I'm gonna beat you, I guess. But the book doesn't frame it the same way that it does with the other two men, that they're, you know, terrible, abusive assholes. Tea Cake is still just so good, and just, oh, man, it really bothers me. Oh, that is holding a mirror up to the culture at the time, you see. I guess. But the book seems to endorse it, though. It's, like, told through... Janie's eyes, right? Yeah. So she's accepted it. I guess. I don't like it. Oh, that's another strike against Nora Zeal. Nora Nora Zeal Hurst. Yeah. Is that that Sora's evil, like, mirror twin? (laughs) Nora Roberts. Yeah. Nora Nora Roberts, he did it. So farmers get word that a hurricane is coming, and they respond to this news like all true Floridians do. By throwing a party. But yeah, if you are a Floridian, that's that's actually what you do. When we hear a hurricane's coming, we, we basically just throw a party and get loaded. So Janie wants to leave, but Tea Cake is like, nah, man, it's fine. Everything's gonna be great. And then the hurricane comes, and nothing is fine, and everything's bad. Janie and Tea Cake try to get to higher ground, fighting through wind and floods and all kinds of bad shit. Tea Cake apologizes to Janie for maybe getting them killed, and Janie's like, I'd rather die here with you than be alive in Eatonville. Even though you too beat me for no goddamn reason, but whatevs. You too beat her? For no reason? Yes. Yeah, Bono and the Edge, and then they just... Slash. What? Not Slash. Edge. Whatever. Did you think Slash was the band you two? I don't know. What band is Slash in? <laughs> I don't know, but not that right, one. Right, Guns N' Roses. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe? It is. yeah, I think it's Guns N' Roses. Anyway... This is also where the title of the book comes in, because at that point when they're sort of staring up at the fucking nightmare horror raining from the sky. At the finger of God. At wondering, no, that's tornadoes that are the finger of God. Uh, and that, you know, there's the line that says, like, they, it looked as though they were sort of watching the sky, but really their eyes were watching God being like, what the fuck, God, why you gotta play us like this? As they try to escape the disaster, Janie is attacked by a wild dog. TK comes to her rescue and kills it, but not before it bites him in the face. Not Mr. 305. 
Yeah, Pitbull. <laughs> Mr. Worldwide. That was a reach, yep. Mr. Mr. Worldwide, chilling on, on a... I think he's on the back of a cow, and Janie's trying to hang onto the cow's tail, and the, the dog's trying to bite her. And... Yeah, I guess if you envision that as Pitbull, and that... Dale! <laughs> he just bites T-Cake in the face before getting killed. Dale, 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 dale. Okay, is, is he, like, suddenly fucking Michael Myers or something? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> you can hear him coming. Yeah. Or is he Jaws? That's kind of sick what you're doing. They survived the hurricane, and Janie's like, hey, we should probably get a doctor to look at that big wild dog bite on your fucking face. And T-Cake's all like, nah, it's fine. Oh, I thought he'd be more like blah, 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 the foaming at the mouth. Well, you hold that thought. Because he's had such a great track record with decision-making so far. Some days later, Tea Cake starts acting strange, and I think you can guess what comes next. I can see what's happening here. <laughs> rabies has infected his brain. <laughs> hey, it's rabies! <laughs> <laughs> Looks like you're gonna die soon. How sad. Don't have a wife to beat anymore, because you're dead. Okay. Good, good Moana thing. Yes, he does indeed have rabies. He's not dead now, though. Janie oh. calls a doctor, and he confirms that T-Kick is experiencing all kinds of shitty rabies symptoms, like he can't keep down uh, food or water, really. And if they'd gone to see him weeks ago like Janie fucking wanted to, it'd be fine. But now it's probably too late, and Janie should leave him so that she doesn't get it. But she won't, and T-Cake just gets worse and worse, all while claiming nothing's wrong because all the men in this book are bullheaded idiots, until finally he's just completely mentally gone and tries to shoot her. Janie kills T-Cake in self-defense, and it's sad and horrible because of course it is. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> their eyes were watching bangerang <laughs> and then she has to go on trial for killing him because of course she does and the doctor even comes to testify like dude he was fucking rabid and hurston makes a point of saying that the white people on the jury sympathize with janie but the black community at large felt like she betrayed her husband for some reason Either way, she throws him a, just a huge, you know, fancy funeral and returns to Eatonville. And so now we're all caught up and she finishes telling Phoebe her story. She says Phoebe can tell the story to all the gossips in town because she doesn't give a fuck. She experienced life. She's learned to live. She's had three different marriages and the one with the broke dude who beat her, got rabies, and eventually tried to shoot her was the best one. Yeah. But Janie feels pretty chill about it. The end. <laughs> oh my god, please stop, stop. <laughs> oh, you made me do it again. You it at me. So a couple things I just want to point out. One is we already discussed, people weren't liking Zora Neale Hurston at the time, so initial reaction to this book was pretty much negative across the board. People are basically like, Look at Zora over there, destroying black culture and making black people look horrible. Yep, all black people do is beat their wives and they take abuse and they can't talk and they got names like Steamboat and Tea Cake. So, not very positive press. A couple things I do want to point out with the book. One, the hurricane that is referred to 
the Okeechobee hurricane of 1928 was actually a real hurricane. It was the seventh most intense landfalling hurricane in the U.S. ever. So, like, when you think of Hurricane Andrew or Katrina, this one's, like, right there with them. So, the devastation was real. Damn. I'm just throwing it in there. Yeah, no, hey, that's, that's worth knowing. Yeah. So, as the book kind of became sort of rescued and, you know, revitalized and all of that, it gets looked through a lot now as a important kind of proto-feminist novel in that you have this woman going through life and, you know, she experiences these marriages with these men and she sort of defined, they, or they try to define her by her marriage to them, that to Logan, like, she is just a thing that belongs to him, that he can make do whatever. In this case, it's farm work. And with Joe, you know, her job is to be Mrs. Joe's hot wife. She doesn't have any agency. So she rejects both of these men, you know, and that's that's a big part of it too, is, like, Janie acts on her own, you know, will and volition and is, you know, an active player in her own story. She ditches Logan because she's like, this is bullshit. And while she does stick with Joe until he dies, she does at least um, make it a point to be like, you know what, I'm independent now. I'm never going to be that person that I was when I was married to him again. And so when she does get with T-Cake, they are on equal terms. That's why it's such a big deal that when they go into the Everglades and they're farming, like they're farming together. They're both doing the work. And then when they come home, they're like, both helping around the house and cooking and stuff like that. So she's not a possession. She's not a thing. She's an equal partner in the relationship. And that's a pretty big deal. I still get really mad because, again, the best husband she has is one who still beat her for no freaking reason. But Janie has agency. And as a woman of color protagonist in a book in the time when it was written, that's a big deal. So the book has been adapted multiple times for the stage, typically under the name To Gleam It Around to Show My Shine, and occasionally uh, under the name Eatonville. Uh, it became a musical at one point, I think. Like, it sort of kind of spun off into its own thing as a stage play. Oprah did make a TV movie with Halle Berry and Michael Ely, and apparently it ended up kind of being less a story of like culture and race and feminism and stuff and more a soft core cinemax sort of situation that's at least what it got criticized as which to be fair it was holly berry and michael ely 12 years ago and honestly they're both still pretty hot now and 12 years ago so they were like really fucking hot uh so like can you blame them the racial and gender commentary was bound to get lost their eyes were watching Halle Berry and Michael Ely do a sex. I was surprised that in 2012, there is an adaptation of a live radio play performance. This blew my mind because in 2012, I don't know why people were doing stuff for the radio. What about I'm putting plays on the radio? It's 2012. Uh, RJ? Yeah. I hate to break it to you. Yeah. This is essentially a radio show that we do and just put online. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> I think it's where the show should end. <laughs> no, we still have to do. <laughs> we still have to do the thing. Hey, RJ. Hey, Megan. Sup, Megan? Yo. Yes, Megan. <laughs> there, as we're watching God. Yeah. Good or bad? I respect the work. I think it's tough to 
hold up a mirror to society and maybe even one's own culture and just themselves and basically show warts and all and especially in an atmosphere where you're being criticized without then moralizing within the book and basically leaving it up for the book to speak for itself and for readers to be able to make their own decisions on the work so i definitely respect that i can see how it is tough to read and understand definitely now in the 21st century in 2017 but probably even at the time especially for people who weren't in from the area that if you weren't from the south and you didn't speak with that dialect i can only imagine being someone from new york city reading this thing that's that's fair yeah <laughs> and she didn't care Nah. And so I respect that. Zora Neale Hurston, don't give no fucks. She knew who she was. She knew what she wanted to write. She did it. Grew her way. The, grew up on the mean streets of Jacksonville. She feared nothing. Megan? RJ? Your thoughts? So as I've already expressed, the first time that I read it when I was a teenager, I definitely had a hard time getting into it because the, the dialect really threw me off. Even though I was a Floridian, I'm still a white one from in urban area in the 21st centuries. And even when I did read it the first time, it did kind of, it, it pissed me off. Uh, the whole thing about, you know, TK beating her and that kind of being the best that she could hope for still. I definitely appreciate it a lot more now as I tend to do when I look back at these books, uh, you know, a good 10 years or so older. And yeah, like RJ said, it's, it's a work that deserves to be respected for what it did and also um, kind of what I said about before, about, you know, feminism and agency and things like that. It's it's still not an easy read, but I think, you know, it's good. It's worth it. Um, I think people judged it unfairly when it first came out, but also can only speak to that coming from the, you know, coming from a white person with a white person's experience. So, like... I can't experience reading it as a black person and whatever, you know, they might feel about it differently in terms of culture and experience. So that's just mine. That's very long-winded. I apologize. That'll about do it for us on this episode of Oh No Lit Class. If you like this show, if you like us, we're pretty cool. I think we're pretty, we're pretty neat. Leave us, uh, leave us some ratings. Leave us some reviews on iTunes. Maybe subscribe. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter. And you can always listen to all of our episodes everywhere, but also at onolitclass.com. And also, we're making new friends. Yay, friendship. It's, it's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And one of our new friends is Serves You Right, an advice podcast with Andy and Julie, where they take your questions and help you. Yeah, but it's super funny, and you should check it out. And they shouted us out because they're awesome. So I'll let them tell you in their words. That's why we have gravestones, so that when, when the aliens come back and resurrect us with our DNA, they'll know how we were called in our Earth bodies. Oh yeah, that's what Tom Cruise believes. Oh, oh hey, I'm Andy. And I'm Julie. What are we doing here? We give advice. Oh yeah, we give you advice your mother would never give you. That's our thing. In fact, what's this? We got a question. We got a question from John. John asks, my dog died. How do I cope? Find yourself uh, a boy to cuddle yourself to happiness with. Build a lab in your basement and bring it back to life. 
Except full disclosure, please don't try this method on children. Great advice. We crushed it. Nailed it. Done in one. Stay tuned to our newer episodes by listening to Serves You Right on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much every place you get your podcast from. New episodes every Friday. We'll see you there. Thank you, as always, to Best Day, because I think we started forgetting to do that again. SoundCloud, as you may have heard, is becoming less of a thing and might go under, so so he is migrating his music to Bandcamp. So you can still listen to awesome Best Day tunes, but at Bandcamp instead. The next episode will be on August 17th. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. the duck story. What? 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 No. <laughs> God. <laughs> 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 <laughs>